Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Wasn't that a beautiful time of worship? It's gorgeous. Didn't want to come away from that, really. Um, so we're continuing with our series, Choose, A Life of Worship, um, week three. If you missed any of these, you can catch up on our YouTube channel, as always. Now, Jake's not here today. He's, uh, he's away for the weekend with his family. Anyone remember any of the Hebrew words he talked about last week? A bit of homework for you. Yada. Yada. <laughs> what was that? Yada was to... Do you remember? Clue? It's a clue. Raise your hands in worship. Shabak? To shout in worship. And halal was to party or boast in God. So these great words in the Old Testament that um, are used to describe the acts of worship. Today I'm going to use, look at a Greek word that's in the New Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek, uh, translated that way. And the word we're going to look at today is a word you can all learn as well, proskunio. Say after me, proskunio. When you see the word worship in the New Testament in your Bibles, this is the word that's normally underlying where you see the word worship. The translators have used this word proskunio. It's used throughout your New Testament over and over again to describe worship or the act of worship. So for some examples for you, uh, when the wise men came to the baby Jesus and they found him, they, they worshipped him. And that word there, proskunio, same word again. In John's Gospel, when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well, describing to her the nature of worship in the kingdom and the nature of true worship, proskuneo used throughout this text there again in John 4. And then again, when Jesus ascended into heaven and he spent his last time with the disciples there in Luke 24, he was taken up and they worshipped him, proskuneo again. It's there over and over Again, throughout your New Testament. It's used some 60 times in 54 different verses to describe the act of worship. So it's used an awful lot in the New Testament to describe worship. What might surprise you is what this word means in the original Greek language. It means to kiss like a dog licking its master's hand. (laughs) So now I've got your attention. How bizarre that they use this word throughout all the dog. Oh, the dog. He is cute, isn't he? Anyone know why dogs lick their master's or mistress's hand? Why does a dog do that? Now, if you've got a Labrador, let's take the food out of the equation for a moment. Why does a dog lick its master's hand? Now, you're all saying salt, but that's completely the wrong answer. Okay, it, you know, dogs do like salt, but they don't lick your hand for salt. Any other ideas? Exactly, because dogs are pack animals, derived originally from wolves, pack animals. And uh, when a dog licks another dog, it's basically showing that it's submissive to that dog. It's acknowledging that dog is pack leader. So when a dog comes and licks your hand like that, it's demonstrating that actually you are pack leader. You are its master. It's a sign of submission and surrender. And also, if you've been away from your dog for a while and your dog comes and tries to lick you, it's what it's doing. It's trying to soothe the anxiety it's felt 
while you've been away. Oh. So it's, it's reconnecting with... Oh. I'm just going to preach on dogs. That's going to... That's going to do it every single week. Let's get some pictures of some cockapoos up there. And I'm like, game over. The church will explode in thousands of people. So the dog is trying to connect. It's trying to, it's trying to re-engage. It's trying to demonstrate that you are its master. You are its security. You are the one who it basically submits to. So when the Bible translators came to try and describe pick a word from the Greek language that somehow described the nature of worship. This is the one they landed on. They landed on this word that's, that basically describes this intimate connection between uh, a being and another being, but a submissive, surrendered relationship. It's the, it's the word they chose to use. That, does that mean God wants us to lick him? No is the right answer. No is the right answer. <laughs> Sure, I read that somewhere in Ecclesiastes. God, no. God does not want us to lick him. But there's a sense where we turn towards and we, it's this is turn towards to kiss. It's this kind of intimate act of turning towards and, and acknowledging who God is in reverence and submission. And the, and the kiss that the, is, is the intimate act that is, is actually happening in worship that J, uh, Jake alluded to last week. We'll focus a bit more on intimacy next week, but I want to focus on this whole concept of surrender, surrender and submission uh, in worship. Sorry, dog lovers, but we need to move on. One last lingering look, and he's gone. He's back. He's gone. We said, didn't we, that revelation and response is part of how we describe worship. We get a revelation of who God is, and then we respond to that in, in worship. Uh, in the book of Acts, you will find an account of when Paul, the Apostle Paul, was in Athens. And uh, Athens was a very pagan city full of pagan temples. And he walked around Athens and saw all these different pagan temples and then started to tell the people about Jesus, the, the true God, as he saw it. And he kind of got sort of semi-arrested and taken to the high court, a place called the Areopagus, where all the kind of best minds of Greece were, were there. And he was called to account as to why he was essentially um, talking about a, a deity outside of the, of the Greek sort of system. And he was called to account there and asked to give an account of this foreign deity that he was describing to the people. And what Paul says in, that, in Athens in that book in Acts 17 is one of the most sort of dramatic accounts that Paul ever gives in terms of a preach describing the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. And uh, this is what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul describes to these best minds in Greece the nature of God. God is transcendent. God is over everything and in everything and through everything. And he doesn't live in temples that we can build for him. He doesn't need us to make him a house or a home. Uh, he's much bigger and greater than that. 
the Greeks in Athens had even built a temple to the unknown God, just in case they'd missed the God out by mistake and offended him. So they built a temple to the unknown God to make sure they covered all their bases in terms of their worship. But Paul says God doesn't need that. God doesn't need, in fact, anything from us. In fact, the truth is he's the one who sustains us. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. And he puts people across the whole face of the earth in the hope that they would turn towards him and seek him and find him. And Athens is full of these pagan temples and and these, these people are trying to connect with gods. But Paul says, there's a true God that's not far from any one of you. He's right there. And if you turn, you can find him. And God hasn't got a fragile ego. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need us to, to, to give to him. In fact, he's the one who gives to us. And Paul alludes to the fact God's created the whole universe as a signpost back to himself, that we would reach out for him and we would find him. And Paul is saying this is the true nature of God. This is the true nature of worship. When we recognize who God is and how, how great God is, our natural response is to turn to him in worship because it's in him we live and move and have our being, as he describes there. And so worship at its heart is discovering, in a sense, our rightful place in the universe. We have a revelation of who God is, have a revelation of who we are in relation to God, and that brings forth worship in us. We turn towards God in submission and surrender. In John's Gospel, there's an account of Jesus healing a blind man. And it's quite a long story. The whole healing creates a massive drama for the people around the man. It starts off with the the men's neighbours doubting that it's really him because he's always been blind, he's always been begging, and now this guy's popped up who's not blind. It's like, well, you're obviously not the right man. You're obviously pretending you were blind. The Pharisees drag the blind man in who's now can see and say, well, tell us about how you can see because you were healed on the Sabbath. And clearly that's God's day off. So how could you possibly have been healed by God? He doesn't work Saturdays. So, so how can that have been God who's involved in your healing? They question the man and they ask him about Jesus. And, and the poor man is getting more and more perplexed by all these questions. They send for the man's parents and say, prove to us he was born blind. They say, well, he was. Ask him yourself. And the whole thing's kicking off. And they question the man over and over again trying to kind of drill down and determine actually Jesus is just a, a sinner and the man's a sinner and the whole thing's a hoax. And the, you hear the man's exasperation in the middle of John's gospel and John 9 says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And that's his response back to the Pharisees. And in the end, they throw him out, they're exasperated when they throw him out. They say, you're a sinner, steeped in sin from birth, clearly because you were born blind, you're obviously steeped in sin, they throw him out. And this man must have been in total turmoil. He'd, he'd, he'd woken that day being blind, and now he could see. And all he could see was people around him just in disarray and confusion and, anti- and being antagonistic towards him. Jesus goes and finds him after he's been thrown out by the Pharisees. And he says this to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this is a strange question because... You'd expect him to say, well, do you believe I'm God? Or do you believe uh, I'm the Christ? But actually, this is a phrase that he uses. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And I thought we'd watch a little short Bible Project video now that explains why Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man over and over again in 
the New Testament. So let's watch this video for a few moments. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain. He was jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human. And he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more. All humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. 
He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device. But Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst. And then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. So, Jesus says to this man who's now received his sight, do you believe in the Son of Man? So he's saying to him, do you believe in that, that idea that someone's going to come and put everything straight, a God-man's going to come and bring about God's kingdom? Now at this point, the man's eyes have been physically opened, but his spiritual eyes, I think, are still yet to be opened. When the Pharisees had questioned him about this man who healed him, they said, well, who is he? And he said, well, I think he's a prophet. So he still hadn't fully realized who Jesus was. And the truth is, you and I can be around Jesus and we can receive him and see him in all sorts of different ways. Until our spiritual eyes are fully opened, we're not fully able to enter into, I think, surrender in worship. So the man believes in the Son of Man, but then he says this strange thing. He says, tell me, so I may believe in him. I may believe in him. There are two beliefs happening here. The man mentally believes in, but he wants to believe on. He wants to know who this person is so he can transfer his trust to this person that he believes will come. And again, that needs to happen for us in our walk with Jesus. We transfer our mental ascent from an in to an on. We, stop, we, stop, we move from believing in Jesus to believing on Jesus. We throw our lot in with him. We trust him. So Jesus opened this man's eyes, and now he begins to open his spiritual eyes to who he really is. He's not just a healer or a prophet. He's something much greater. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. So it's about revelation and response. Revelation and response. Jesus says to him, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. He's the one speaking with you. I'm standing in front of you. God is not far from each one of us, Paul said to the Greeks in Athens. And now here is Jesus standing in front of the man whose eyes have been opened. He says, I'm the one who's promised to come. In light of this revelation, the man says, I believe 
and he worships. And what's the word here? Proscunio. To turn towards, to kiss, in submission. Intimate surrender to one who is greater than you. This story of the man healed from blindness, it does show us that we can see Jesus in many different ways. To that man who was born blind, initially Jesus was just a healer, maybe a, a prophet. To the neighbours, Jesus was this dis- disruptive person who was drawing unnecessary attention and upsetting the social balance about a man who'd always been blind and always begged. To the man's parents, he just brought trouble. He, he dragged them in front of the authorities. And to the Pharisees, Jesus was more trouble, confounding them about who God was and how God worked and when he worked. They all saw Jesus, but none of them really saw Jesus. They hadn't the revelation of who he was. He was this man, God, the son of man, come to usher in the new kingdom. In the midst of revelation for the man born blind, he suddenly saw and he worshipped. And that is a true pattern, I think, for all of us. We start with this idea that Jesus really is Lord. Unless you really believe that Jesus is Lord, you're not going to be able to worship him. You're not going to be able to surrender to him, be submissive to one greater than you, unless you recognise that actually the God that we worship is the creator of the entire universe, the upholder of all things. He's not just a good idea. He's not even just a God idea. He's, He's someone greater, so much greater than who we are. And as we recognise him as Lord, we can then believe. We can then basically choose to put our trust on him rather than just saying, I believe in him. We lean into him, we lean onto him, we allow him to carry the burdens of this life that we go through. We trust him in all things. And then we can actually choose to worship. We can choose to worship. And worship really is all about dethroning ourselves. Dethroning ourselves. Getting off the throne of our lives and allowing God to take his rightful place in our lives. Let's come back to our dog for a second. If you came home from work and you found your dog sitting on your sofa, which some of you might allow, um, and he's got the TV remote in his paw, then you probably think things have gone a bit awry. Saying that I've seen dogs being pushed in pushchairs in Whitstable, so maybe that's just the way things are now. But if the dog had become the master, you would then think, well, actually, things have have gone a bit awry here. The dog's got a bit above his station. If the seat that you and I are occupying in our lives is God's seat, then we've got a bit above our station. And so by choosing to give up that seat and letting God sit in that seat, we dethrone ourselves and we enthrone God and we, we rightfully allow God his place in our lives. Whenever there's a revelation of God throughout Scripture, you find people getting down. They tend to get down. They bow or they get on their faces because they have a a revelation of who God is. They give God his rightful place by bowing before him. Paul says in his letter to the Philippian church, he says, at some point in the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. 
There's an implication here that every human who's ever lived will one day bow before Jesus, will come into a revelation of who the creator is. Whether it's by choice, we don't know. But we have a choice now to worship. We have a choice to bow down. We have a choice to enthrone God in our lives. And when we humble ourselves in worship, we're giving God his seat back. We're giving God the rightful place in our lives. And as the Bible Project video explained, God came as this perfect example of humility and service. He was the suffering king, the serving king, who conquered evil by surrendering his life. And he calls you and I to the same. He calls you and I to be part, chips off the old block. We're supposed to be the same in terms of the way we conduct our lives. We dethrone ourselves. We enthrone God. And sometimes we enthrone others. We choose to serve others rather than putting ourselves at the centre. And so surrendering worship is about letting go and letting God. Letting go of the things that we hold on to and letting God in and occupy his rightful place in our life. And as we worship, as we surrender in worship, it reminds us of who God is and who we're not. It puts things back into their rightful order. What does surrendering worship look like? Well, I've got a few thoughts around what it might look like on a Sunday morning. We'll explore over the coming weeks about worshiping all of life. But I was just thinking specifically about what we do here on a Sunday morning. I think one of the first things you can think about as you come into church is you need to confront your pride. <laughs> and what do I mean by this? Well, recognise your ego. Recognise the insecurities. Recognise the, the bit of you that is struggling to come into a place like this and submit to God and surrender to God and to worship. Because you've got, you've got this ego, yeah? You're like, I've got an ego. <laughs> I can feel your ego. We've got this self... I mean, Amy did a beautiful job today of leading us in worship. She talked about, you know, let's try and forget how we see ourselves, how we see others, the fact that we, we think we're being judged, the fact that we, we judge. We've got these, this ego in the swirl, our prize. The fleshly part of us rises up and wants to be prominent and wants to, wants to be on display. And so as you walk in a building on a Sunday morning and you are saying, I'm going to surrender in worship, I'm going to choose to enter into God's presence, all these things are rising up in you. They're trying to get in the way and get your attention. And you just need to recognise that they're there. So when I say confront your pride, recognise it's, it's present, it's in play. The Bible talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new. It's a continual choice that we make to become more like Christ, to, to try and put off our old self and put on the new. So as you cross that threshold, coming to church, all these things will be bubbling up in you. And we recognise them, all these myriad of voices going round in our heads. As an example, sometimes I feel led to kneel in worship, depending on what God's doing and what the song's doing. And straight away, the voices in my head say, why are you going to kneel? Why are you going to kneel? You just want to kneel to look more holy, don't you? You want to kneel to look like a really good pastor. Because <laughs> you're at the front of the church, and if you kneel, everyone can see you kneeling, and you can look really cool if you kneel. And then some, some other voice will say, well, if you kneel, you look stupid. Or if you kneel, you might not be able to get back up again. Or all these <laughs> voices are going on in my head. And I've got a choice at that point. I've got a choice to entertain all those voices and try and manage them and think about them and are they valid? Or I can just say, I'm going to just kneel. It's called threshold thinking. I can make a choice and say, I'm not, I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to go with what I feel is the right thing to do. And um, I'll, I'll try and do that. I'll try and go. 
Mm. You might, for, you, for me, it might be raising a hand or closing your eyes. It might be any act of surrendering worship that is outside your normal comfort zone. And as soon as you try and do it, you have all these things swirling around your head. What's your motive? Why are you doing it? What will people think? You look stupid. All these voices come rushing in. The self is always trying to get back on the throne. You need to understand that. The self is always trying to get back on the throne. Every day of your life. In Colossians 3.3, it says, You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. One of the most powerful verses in Scripture. Please remember, Colossians 3.3. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Well, guess what? Your life doesn't like being hidden. It keeps popping out. (laughs) Hi, I'm here. It's the hardest thing to stay hidden in Christ. Because the ego, the self, wants to be visible, wants to come out, wants to play, wants to be present. The hardest thing is to stay hidden in God. We need to ask for God's help. Often we try and fight these battles on our own. We get mixed up in our heads. You can pray a prayer as soon as you walk into Riverside on Sunday morning. Lord, help me to be freer in worship today. Help me by your spirit to be freer in worship. And God will be right there with you, helping you worship him. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Mark 9, 24. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's a father talking to Jesus, wanting to see healing. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Both things present at the same time. And we're always going to be in that state as we come into church on a Sunday morning. Lord, I want to worship. Help me overcome all the things that prevent me worshiping. Invite God in. Invite God in. There's always going to be a battle in your mind when it comes to worship because of the nature of it. There'll always be a battle taking place in your mind. Let's ask God for help to win the battle. So you can confront your pride. You can ask for help. Choose to engage. Regards how you're feeling, choose to engage. Regards how you're feeling. Regards the things that are going on. Did someone smile at me this morning? Oh, I feel grumpy. I'm not going to worship this morning. I'm going to withhold my worship from God because someone didn't smile at me this morning. God's going, really? Okay, so, you know, choose to engage, choose to engage. The truth is, regardless of how you're feeling, God is the same. God is always worthy of your worship. Regardless of how you feel about yourself, about you feel about him, feel about others, feel about the songs that we're singing, God is always worthy of your worship. So our feelings don't change him. Our feelings just don't change who he is. We can choose to engage. In fact, we can bring those feelings to him. And say, God, I'm going to choose to bring how I feel to you. That's true worship. That's bringing ourselves authentically to God. So we choose to engage. And if we we give God a sacrifice of worship when we don't want to, that's a very precious thing to do. Because we're choosing to worship him, even if we don't feel like worshipping him. And these can be some of the most powerful times you have with God in worship. Giving him that sacrifice of worship. The psalmist says in Psalm 51, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The psalmist there speaking about the reality of his worship in that moment. I'm coming to you in worship with brokenness. Bearing down, contrite, bearing down, getting down. That's what contrite means. Getting down before you, giving you your rightful place, dethroning myself, even though I don't feel like it. And the psalmist says, you will never deny that. You won't despise that. You will never judge that. In fact, it's, it's a beautiful thing to do that. God knows the cost of us worshipping him when we don't feel like him, when things are going wrong in our life, when we still choose to give him worship. It's incredibly powerful. 
That word there, contrite, means to collapse before God. To collapse before God, to abandon yourself before God in whatever state you're in, bringing your worship to him. God will never judge your weakness or your vulnerability or your honesty. It's a beautiful thing to come before him in that way. So we choose to engage. We choose to believe. What I mean by that is we choose to reaffirm that actually I do believe that God is God and Jesus is who he said he was. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to recognise his lordship again in my life. I'm going to come and worship the creator of the universe who I can have a personal connection with. We believe Jesus is the son of man who will restore all things like we saw in that video, who shows us the way to be. So we choose to believe and then we choose to surrender. This whole idea of surrender seems so counterintuitive to us. We're raised to be independent, proud, self-sufficient people. The idea of surrender is an idea, it feels weak. It feels less than, it feels like something we shouldn't be doing. But actually it's so powerful when we choose to move ourselves from the throne of our lives and offer that place to God. It's one of the most powerful things we can do. We move from the centre and we allow God to occupy the space he rightfully occupies. And that's what true worship is. The songs and the music facilitate us to be able to do this. They create a vehicle for you and I to dethrone ourselves, to come before God and say, God, I recognise you for who you are again, and I'm going to come in this intimate moment. We, we have songs back to back because it takes a while sometimes for us to get past our ego. You know, one song doesn't cut it. Three songs in, you might be starting to melt a bit. You're getting over yourself. You're dethroning yourself. You're getting into the presence of God. That's why we do songs back to back, because it creates a a time for us to enter back in. I remember now. I remember now who I am. I remember who God is. I can release worship to him. And when we surrender, some incredible things happen in worship. We experience a new freedom. We experience freedom. Again, which seems counterintuitive. I'm submitting to somebody, I've got less freedom. Actually, we experience more freedom in surrender. We experience healing and transformation of our souls. God can do a deep heart work in us that we can't do ourselves when we come before him and we literally collapse before the Lord and say, Lord, have your way. And we have this deeper sense of encounter and revelation and intimacy with God. God isn't a God who's to be kept at arm's length. God isn't a God that we need to get all our stuff sorted out before we approach his desk and he marks our work. God is a God we come completely and intimately before. We turn towards the kiss in submission and reverence and he meets us there. And as we do that, we have a greater revelation of who he is and that revelation feeds our worship. And we go deeper and deeper and on and on. And we prepare ourselves for eternity because you and I are going to be worshipping forever in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said these words. I want to leave you with these. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And normally we read these words and we think it's about stuff. We need to give up stuff, the things that we own, the things that we have, give up our time. What's the most precious thing you possess? It's your heart. It's your choice to give that to God. And when Jesus said this, 
He said, if you really want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you that choice to surrender yourself. Just as he surrendered himself to his father, we surrender ourselves to God. We give him the most precious thing that we have, our choice to dethrone ourselves and enthrone him in our lives. And if we're going to truly follow him and truly worship him, it has to be in a place of surrender. And that can be challenging for us in so many ways. Because we want to keep coming out from being hidden by the Lord. Our ego wants to come out and play. But as we dethrone ourselves and invite him into that rightful place, powerful, powerful things happen. I want to invite the, the worship band back. They're going to do one more song for us today. And we're going to use this again as an opportunity to connect with the Lord, to dethrone ourselves and worship him. So think about how you might engage. Think about what you need to do to check your ego. Think about how you lean on and believe on the Lord and think about what surrender might look like for you. The important thing is that we're all authentic. We're authentic. But equally, we're being called into a greater freedom. Sean, you had a, a picture, didn't you, earlier on? Do you want to come and share that? Just grab that mic. It's just as we were worshipping this morning, just saw a picture of a hot air balloon. And the deeper into worship that we went, the higher the balloon rose. And the higher the balloon rose, the more we could see it around us. And just a real sort of sense that God's saying, and that's where, this is the area I want to work with you to reach for me. Amen. Amen. So if you're right, why don't you stand with me? And we're going to spend the, this next five minutes or so just worshipping again. So revelation produces response in worship. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.